So I have an important announcement as we begin our service, but I need, I need you to assure me that you're going to remain calm and seated, okay? This morning, someone came into our church building armed and dangerous, and that person is you. Actually, it's each one of us. Each one of us came this morning armed and dangerous with a weapon more powerful than a gun, than a knife, than explosives, and you don't even need a license to operate this weapon. You each have it. You've probably used it several times today, and hopefully you're going to use it wiser after this morning. And obviously I'm talking about our tongue. Probably the screen gave it away. Our words. The Bible has a lot to say about how we use them. We want to make sure we use them very well. And never has this topic been more important than today because never before in human history have you had the capacity to share words as widely and as effectively as today. Maybe not effectively all the time, but wisely or widely for sure. In the past, you can rewind just a couple of decades and think if you wanted to get your message out to thousands of people, maybe even millions of people, you would have needed a publisher or lots of money or a lot of fame to get your words out. But today you can do it with a free account set up in seconds. And you can get your message sent to literally millions of people that quickly. That's why it's never been more important to understand how to use words wisely. At the same time, never have words been as cheapened and hollowed out as we see today. We're inundated by so many words here, there, and everywhere. And that's why we want to ask, how can we use them wisely? How does a Christian use their words wisely? And now, thankfully, this is something God's word speaks a lot about. There's Proverbs, a whole section of the Bible that dedicates a large portion of it to how to use words wisely. Things quite as simple as a soft answer turns away wrath or when words are many, sin is not lacking. Very f- short, memorable phrases that help us to remind ourselves how to speak wisely. But one of the, the hallmark passages that speaks about using our tongues well is James chapter 3. James chapter 3 is found in the midst of a letter, a New Testament letter written by the half-brother of Jesus, James the Just. And he writes there to provide practical instruction to Christians who are facing trials. And he's pointing out to them how they are to live their lives and how they are to live out their faith. It's not supposed to be just a a spoken faith, but a lived out faith. And chapter three, where we're going to dive in this morning, comes on the heels of this discussion he's had about works and faith and how You need your faith to be displayed in works. And this is such an important and often confused topic in the church. I have phone calls probably every week with somebody who really is relying on their works to save them. And that's wrong. Scripture calls us out for that. And it says it's not by works of righteousness that we do that we're saved, but according to his mercy. So we need to make sure this is always a clear, clear message It's not by our works that we are saved. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. However, as one pastor has put it, uh, we need to make sure that faith is always working out. So the question you might uh, have heard before is, if you were to stand before Jesus one day and he was to say, why should I let you into heaven? Or you stand before God the Father and he says, why should I let you into heaven? It's a classic question. The answer must never be, 
because I, because I did this, because I did that, because I obeyed the 10 commandments, because I'm a pretty good person, because I oppose tyranny. None of those answers will satisfy God the Father. The only answer we can have is because of Jesus, because of what he did for us, because of what he did on the cross. That's the mindset of someone that is saved by grace. All the credit goes to Jesus Christ. Their faith and their hope is in what he has done. But then people like that naturally, and I say naturally because it is true, they naturally begin to do good works. It's natural for somebody who has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit and saved by grace to desire greater and greater and to to do good works. And one of those good works is having to do with your mouth, how you speak. What comes out of your mouth matters a whole lot. And so the first thing we're going to see from James this morning in chapter three, verses one through three, is this, don't speak carelessly. This is his wisdom to us. James three, verses one and two. It says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is very concerned with these believers and how they speak. And his application point comes out real clear. Not many of you should become teachers. It's very clear. And his reasoning for the application is also clear. He's got two reasons. Reason A, teachers will be judged with greater strictness. And reason B, it's also really easy to mess up in what you say. Now, we probably know reason two quite well. It's very easy to mess up in what you can say. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But this first reason that teachers are judged with greater strictness, this is something you have to take by faith in the word of God. You have to believe it by faith. God does say with absolute clarity, those who teach will be judged more strictly. It matters a whole lot more if the person teaching gets it wrong than if the student gets it wrong. God does the judging, not a human court. And quite frankly, none of us have seen our grade yet, so to speak. We haven't even seen the grade of our teacher. So you may have a pastor, you may have that YouTube preacher you listen to, and nobody has seen God's judgment on them for their teaching yet. That's something that's to come. And so when God's word says they're going to be judged more strictly, there's going to be a a stricter set of criteria for them. We have to take that by faith because we haven't seen it. And so because we haven't seen it, there often is a tendency to kind of shrug this off. It's like, ah, it's it's not a big deal. Yet if we had seen it, we would for sure take it seriously. When James was writing this, presumably there's a lineup of people that want to teach. That's why he would have to say, not many of you should be teachers. They didn't have in those days access to recorded messages. They didn't have access to maybe the scriptures the same way we did, for sure. Uh, Certainly there was not printed Bibles in everybody's hands. And even if there were, not as many people were literate. And so they relied on oral communication and teaching to transmit doctrine. They relied a lot on teachers teaching in person to transmit doctrine and to transmit the teaching of the church. And so therefore it was a prominent role and glory seekers would want that role. They're like, ah, everybody looks to them. They're the person with all the answers. I'm going to seek that role out. And that's not unlike what we see in some ways today. But James reminds us that by looking at this 
teaching ministry, you have to remember there's a greater judgment tied to it, a great weight of responsibility. Matthew 18, verse six, this is a verse many of you will know. Jesus said these words, he said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You gotta read that again. He's saying, if you cause someone to sin, and especially this would apply to teachers. If teachers are teaching falsely and causing a whole group of people to sin, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be drowned a terrible, miserable death than to do that. That should make us very careful about how we speak. If we could see that judgment coming for those who are false teachers, for those who are careless with their words, the blind leading the blind, it would certainly send send shivers down our spine. Teachers, it's true. Teachers communicate God's word from one generation to the next. They shape worldviews. It's actually quite fascinating to think about this and quite humbling to realize the consciences of each individual in this room can be shaped by preaching by teachers over time. Your parents taught you many things about what's right and what's wrong. And that framed up your conscience that helped you have like a moral compass about what's right and what's wrong. So a teacher bears great responsibility in forming that. Now, in some ways it feels to me like preaching a message like this is kind of like shooting myself in the foot because we need teachers. We need lots of teachers. We need teachers that are equipped to teach our children down the hallway, we need teachers to ch- teach our youth. We need teachers that can teach the public, teachers that can teach our church. We need teachers. So why would I go to James and say, not many of you should really become teachers? There's two reasons. One is because the Bible says it. And so if the Bible says it, we preach it. But the second is this, we would rather, far rather have five teachers that take the role very seriously and think critically about what they are saying than 15 people that are just filling time and kind of spouting whatever Oprah said this week, right? We want serious teachers. Now, praise God, we currently do have a great roster of teachers in our children's ministry. Some are even teaching this morning who believe this, who care about God's word deeply, who want to see it accurately represented. But I still want each one of you to think carefully through this. We also have a a very solid curriculum that we use for our children's ministry to help our teachers so that it's easier for them to come to truth and understand it. But still, we need to think carefully about how we speak. Because, and this is the other reason James gives us, we stumble in many ways. There's so many ways that we stumble. And he says, in fact, that if you don't stumble in what you say, you're basically perfect. If you can control this thing here, you have a great ability to control every other muscle of your body is what the scripture is saying. Now, it might not be that when he says there, they are perfect, that he means without any sin, but maybe more likely that they have reached the highest standard of maturity. They've met the highest standard and it shows that they're the kind of person that can control all other aspects of them. And so this is a good and practical takeaway, real simple, helpful tip. If you wanna gauge your self-control, you wanna do a little self-control test, just hit record on your phone and keep it with you all day and then play it back at the end of the day and see what it looks like. How's your tongue? How's your speech? Maybe you wanna look at somebody else and see, are they a person of self-control? Just consider, how do they talk? 
if there's a problem with self-control, it's going to show up in how you speak. It's kind of like the check engine light of self-control. It shows when there's an issue. And if you're like me, there's probably far too many times you, you put the proverbial foot in your mouth and you stumble. And sometimes they're humorous things. A few, a few months ago, actually, I think this was last year at some point, I was speaking at a, a function. And after the function was done, I, I got into a conversation with a Christian brother that I hadn't met for a long time. And we got chatting about life and he was excitedly telling me about how he had, he had just had a child. And I was like, congratulations, that's great. And in my mind, I was thinking, I, I'm trying to remember, I haven't seen this guy in a while. Is he married? And I, I glanced down for a second and he wasn't wearing a ring. And so I actually said out loud, this is the stupidest thing ever. I said, congratulations in one sentence, glanced down, didn't see a ring. And I said, oh, wait. And like out loud, embarrassed myself so bad as if I could take back my congratulations because maybe you're not married and you had a kid and maybe I shouldn't congratulate you. And he like, oh yeah, he realized, oh, I wasn't wearing my ring because of work today. And he, he graciously covered over my, my stumbling and my foolishness and explained the situation. I'm like, oh, I felt like such a, I stumbled. I just said, my brain thought a thought. I should not have said anything. It was dumb. It was innocent. It wasn't a big deal. Fortunately, he's forgiven me. And it's great. But it just shows us how easy our tongue messes up. And when James talks about stumbling in many ways here, he's talking about not just like innocent little slip-ups. He's talking about sin. Sin that's in here that comes out. And he talks about many ways that there's just clearly, we stumble in many ways. And you can go through the, the letter of James and there's seven different ways I've seen. You might be able to pull out more. Seven different ways that he shows that are common that we stumble in what we say. Here's one. We say false things about God. You can look at James 1.13 and he's telling them, don't think when you're tempted that God is tempting you. Don't say that because that's false. God doesn't tempt you. We say false things about God without even thinking about it. We might parrot something we heard somewhere. It was memorable, but it's false. I.e., God helps those who help themselves. That's not a verse in the Bible, but we say it. We quickly say things that are false about God. And that is a dangerous way we stumble. When it comes to God's word, we also stumble in many ways. Uh, how about this? We just misquote God's word. How many of us have been in a conversation and we say, the Bible says this, and you look, the Bible doesn't actually say that, or it doesn't say it like that. Maybe we, we gloss over what God's saying. We're like, well, somewhere it kind of says this, and we speak it almost like authoritatively, but it doesn't have any authority behind it. So we speak falsely about God at times. That's one way we stumble. Here's another one. We virtue signal like hypocrites. James 2.16, he's talking to the people there and he says, don't say to someone, be fed, but then don't give them food. That's hypocrisy. That's a very common type of way that we stumble. We say things all the time. We say what we wish we were and what we wish we could do for people, but we never will do for people. That is stumbling. How about the third one? We quarrel. James 4, verse 2, he records them and he says, don't quarrel. That's a way we stumble in what our words are doing. We slander, we speak evil of one another. That's James 4, verse 11. James 4, 13 says, we boast or we brag. It comes out, even in subtle, subtle ways, we boast or we brag. It's another way we stumble in our words. James 5, verse 9, we grumble. How many of us are guilty of that one this week? We grumbled. 
Verse or seventh example, we speak falsely or we, we swear casually or flippantly. James 5 verse 12 says, you shouldn't swear by heaven or by earth. You should let your yes be yes and your no, no. How many of us have quickly said and committed to something that we didn't commit to doing? We, we overpromised, right? These are all ways we stumble in many ways, many times throughout the week. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've probably been guilty of every single one of that list, maybe even in the last week. Matthew 12 verses 36 reminds us that on the day of judgment, this is God's word. He says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Some of us use browsers that erase our history as we go because we're like, I don't wanna be tracked all over the internet for what I say or what I search. But God's like tracking every word you say for your entire life. And you have to give an account for every careless word you speak. That's humbling. It's also slightly fearful. Now in Christ, we have forgiveness. And so we know it's not gonna be a judgment of condemnation. But knowing that those words are not just disappearing into the past makes us careful in how we speak. So here are a few quick points of application from this idea of avoiding careless speech. One, do your homework. If you're in a role where you have the opportunity to teach, especially teaching God's word, do your homework. Second Timothy 2 verses 15 to 17 says this. This is Paul to Timothy, his, his apprentice. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then he says this, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene, which is just like a disgusting, (laughs) disgusting idea, but it's true. Some things spread a lot faster. Unfortunately, unwholesome talk spreads a lot faster than wholesome talk. And when I was in my late teens and first having the opportunity to teach and to preach, I had this reckoning of responsibility, you could say, where I came to realize I need to be very careful to be a student rightly handling the word of truth. I realized I could become a false teacher without actually intending to become one. I could just become careless and sloppy and and repeating things I'd heard just to be teaching, but in, in essence, actually promoting a false doctrine. And that was a major driver of me taking up things like Bible school classes and studying God's word. So that's one simple application. Do your homework. Do your homework. Take it seriously. Number two, if you have the gift of teaching, teach. So you can listen to a passage like James 3.1. Not many should be teachers and be like, oh, that looks like a scary thing. I don't want to be a teacher. I won't teach. But if God's given you the gift, you need to use it. You don't get to leave it wrapped up in a box just because it's a little dangerous to use. He's given you that tool. You need to use it and use it well. So we steward it well. We use it well and we depend on the Lord in our teaching. The reality I've noticed is that sadly, or I don't know if it's sadly or good, but often those who are called to teach are quite reluctant to teach because they realize the weightiness of it. It's the ones that aren't reluctant that are chomping at the bit that you kind of got to, watch out for. So we want to watch out for people who are self-appointed, attention-seeking, that are trying to use the Bible as a a tool to get themselves glory. A key trait of those kind of people is that they actually rarely teach the whole counsel of God's word. 
They often will avoid parts that either they don't understand or that will make their listeners feel pruned or disciplined. And so they just don't teach those parts of scripture. Watch out for that. If you have the gift of teaching though, teach. Number three, keep it focused. You don't want to use your words carelessly, so keep it focused. If you have an opportunity to teach or to use your words wisely in that platform, and God's given you that platform, don't use it for venting, self-promoting, selling your recent book, whatever it might be, right? Use it for God's glory. And then finally, and this might be a helpful point, apply this truth of don't speak carelessly offline and online because you're the same you wherever you are speaking. We should think about the influence we have and always be concerned that it's influence for God's glory. In our Harvest Essentials 1 class that many of you come to uh, or have come to, I talk about our three W's, that we want to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ. Those are evidence of a maturing disciple. And I often point it back to us as individuals and say, you need to watch your wake in terms of like, if you think of a boat going through the water, it leaves a wake behind. And we want to look in our rear view mirror every once in a while and see like, what kind of influence am I having on people? What's the response? Watch the wake. Are they glorifying God? Are they worshiping him, walking with him, working with him, working for him as a result of my influence and my teaching? Or are they spinning their tires, arguing, getting and puffing themselves up and just going into a gangrenous, or if that's, if that's a word, kind of end, right? What kind of end are we having? What kind of influence rather? And so this is going to lead us to our second major point from James chapter three. Don't underestimate the power that words have. When I talk about looking in the rearview mirror and watching the wake of your words, you need to realize your words can also cause a tsunami. They have great power. James 3 verses 3 says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What luck. <laughs> the, the tool that has the capacity for the greatest gain, the greatest, the greatest influence for good or for evil also happens to be the one that can't be tamed. That's, it's very, very hard to control the tongue. And we have no wonder that there's issues in our world. James has a couple of different points to make to his listeners here. But this primary point is this. Words have great power and great influence to destroy. Just like a rudder can change the direction of a boat, our words can change the direction of our lives. And this isn't about, you know, some new age manifesting our, our desires by speaking them to the universe so that the universe can listen in and we can get what we want. That's new age and not biblical. It's ungodly. It actually often is 
putting us in the position of God where we can speak things into existence. We're not into that as Christians, but we know that words have power. The Bible teaches that, that they affect relationships, that they can destroy your life. They can destroy the lives of others. And sometimes very, very quickly, it's astonishing how much power and destruction can be wielded by such a small, small muscle. If you think about history, wars have often been started because of words. You know this, marriages have been destroyed by words. Churches have split. Lives have ended. Jobs have been lost. Hopes have been crushed. All because somebody's tongue was out of control. No other part of your body can sin in such significant ways. Your hand is not as powerful as your tongue. Your tongue is very, very destructive. In fact, this is why James is likely going on to say, and the tongue is a fire, right? It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. What he's saying here is the tongue, when it's uncontrolled, it gives full vent to the destructive depravity of our hearts. It represents most clearly the greatest evils about us. It's a world of unrighteousness. It's, it's so representing the full wickedness of the human heart. The source of the wicked tongue is not muted either. It says it's hell. The tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Think about that the next time impure words come out of your mouth. That those are hellish words. Those are hell words. There's no place for them coming out of a Christian. Really, the quickest way you can destroy your life today is to just open your mouth and give full vent to whatever is in your heart. There's a saying most of us have probably heard that talk is cheap. And when we hear that, we mean talk is easy. It doesn't cost you anything to say something and actions are where it's really at. Like actions show whether you mean something. But we shouldn't use that phrase or understand that to mean words are powerless because a match is also very cheap, but it can start a fire that destroys this building, destroys many lives. In fact, each year, millions of dollars are spent fighting forest fires that were started by a careless campfire that got out of control. And each year, similarly, millions of dollars and millions of hours are spent ministering to and counseling and correcting people who have been damaged by somebody else's words, careless words that destroyed lives. So knowing that truth, there's a couple of things we need to apply from it. First, you want to mitigate all the damage that comes out of your mouth. And you could, you could make a term up it. We can make a term like relationship damage mitigation and you know, give it a fancy acronym, RDM, like make sure you mitigate danger when it comes out of your mouth. But on a practical level, what this means is we all have down days. We all have days where we're stressed, we're tired, we're not feeling great, where things didn't go our way. And on those days, we are especially prone to sin with our mouth. I know this. I know this. When I have a, a day that's like this, I kind of switch, switch in my brain and I'm like, today is damage control mode. I am just going to try my best not to say something that destroys lives or relationships or work. You can, in, very quickly, you have one bad day, you can destroy months of work, years of work, 
And so just on those days realizing I got to be especially careful what comes out of my mouth because today I'm, I'm in a weak spot is so key. Better to say nothing at all sometimes. And actually Proverbs speaks quite a bit about that. It talks in Proverbs 17, 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. Often you think it's the person who speaks a lot that has knowledge, but often the person who can just has the more knowledge. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So maybe you are a fool, but the first step towards wisdom is just shutting the mouth. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. That's true. The greater number of words that come out of your mouth, the greater percentage of sin that's going to be out there, the greater chance of expressing what's in your heart. Now we do have to speak as Christians and we're gonna talk about that in a moment, but we need to realize how we can restrain our tongues. Proverbs 26 verse four, this is another example. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him, you be like him yourself. So an example where we're restraining your words. Sometimes you just, you just need to let them be a fool in their folly and we don't answer them. The next proverb says, answer a fool according to his folly. Uh, and so there's wisdom and sometimes there is a time to answer them. Sometimes there's not. And that's where wisdom comes in and we grow in that. Proverbs 26, verse 17. This is the last proverb I'll share with you. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. I've never taken a passing dog by the ears. My guess is that's not a good thing. <laughs> that is like so applicable. There's some fights, it's not your fight to get into. Just leave it. That thread is not your thread. So don't get in that, in that thread of discussion. And I know some of you here might be like the, the equivalent of pyromaniacs where you, you kind of like to say something that just lets, starts a fire and it's kind of fun to watch, but it's not honoring to God to just start a fire for the sake of watching the fire burn. We need to think about the short-term and the long-term effects of what we say. And while we talk about fire for a moment, I came across this news article this week from a couple of years ago that actually was a study done showing that today's houses burn eight times faster than they did 50 years ago, which is kind of reverse of what I would have expected. I would have expected our houses burn slower because we're smarter now. But the, the reality is they burn eight times faster and they produce up to 200 times more smoke today than they did 50 years ago. And that's because we used all kinds of oil-based products, all these synthetic materials in our furniture and our clothing and whatnot. And so get this, 50 years ago, you might've had 30 minutes to get out of your house before it reached flashpoint where like it's totally engulfed in flames. Today, three minutes. That's why you need smoke alarms. So it's not a little campaign for smoke alarms, but it makes sense. You need smoke alarms to get out quick because you have three minutes. And when it comes to our words, it kind of feels similar today. 50 years ago, I don't think people would have, maybe they would have, but man, we're like a powder keg culture. You say something, it just blows up, right? It's not good. And so all the more important to think carefully about what we say. You have the chance to filter your words and you would think, in a, especially in a day and age where a lot of communication happens through text messages and online that people would have like extra time to like think about their words. Like you can actually see it typed out before you hit enter. Most of us, I don't have the luxury of thinking that way when I talk to somebody, it just comes out. 
But when you're like in a thread back and forth, you have 30 seconds, you have five minutes if you want. Some people are frustrated because I don't respond to texts very fast. And uh, just so you know, my, my communication structure, this is totally an aside, is if you want my attention fast, you come and visit me. Second, you give me a call. Third, you can give me a text. And fourth, you can give me an email. I just don't respond to texts like I do if you're in my presence. So I'm sorry, but that's just how it is for me. And I don't know how it is for you. But we have time to process. And we still start wars and start flaming fires. It's crazy. A couple of totally uh, random wisdom points for you. Uh, you can use these if you, you find them helpful. But in a day and age when there's a lot of communication online, we, we kind of lose some of our ability to, to talk well with one another. I found it very helpful if you're in a, a big heated dis disagreement online, just offer a phone call. And nine times out of 10, the argument will just completely fizzle out because often they don't even want a phone call. They don't even want to talk about it. They just want to air their opinion. That's how you know it's not worth a conversation to have. So just offer to have a phone call. Or second, if there is a serious conversation and you know, it's, it's good to have public discourse, think about what the other person's trying to protect. So when you're in a conversation with somebody and somebody goes on the offensive, they're trying to protect something in their discussion and disagreement that they have with you. Figure it out. What are they trying to protect? So you have a conversation with Calvinists and Arminianists, and you're having this debate and dialogue back and forth. And you're like, what are they trying to protect? Well, the Calvinist is trying to protect the sovereignty of God. And the Arminian might be trying to protect that we don't become robots that have no choice in the matter. And so what are they trying to protect? Think about that, and it helps your discussion to become more reasonable. At the, long, at the end of the day, we want to be still cautious, knowing the impact of our words, but not just the short-term damage, also the long-term damage. Each person in this room probably has a couple of phrases in their mind that have been on replay for years that somebody said at a a poor moment that deeply damaged you. They may have hurt you. They may have scarred you. And it's something that you might have a hard time forgiving and definitely a hard time forget, forgetting. And so those words and the pain that those words have caused, let those be a reminder to you that your words in a weak moment can be carried with somebody else for a lifetime. You might forget them tomorrow but they might be remembered by someone else for a lifetime. And the Christian call is always to overcome evil with good. So your dad may have called you stupid, may have called you fat, may have called you ignorant, but you don't have to call your kids that. And your friend may have slandered you publicly. You don't have to return the favor. We overcome evil with good. It's true that no one can fully tame the tongue, but we're still called to bridle it. We're still called to do our very best to tame the tongue, to put it on a leash, a leash on it and to control it as much as possible. But here's what I don't want. I don't want a church full of people that are very, very good at controlling what they say, but their heart's still desperately wicked. They're just really good at acting differently because that is a huge problem. And so that leads us to our final point that James wants to communicate don't speak inconsistently. James 3 verses 9 says this, with it, that's our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, which is a good thing. And also with it, we curse people, not a good thing, who are made in the likeness of God. 
It's like a serious, that's definitely not a good thing. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. His point is so crystal clear. We need to be consistent. From the same mouth shouldn't come blessing and cursing. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Tomorrow morning when you get up and you brew your coffee, remember this. Are you expecting fresh water out of the tap or salt water? Are you like, is every morning kind of a gamble? Uh, uh, It might be salt water this morning. Hopefully not. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And likewise for Christians, it's not supposed to be that way. For first century residents of the ancient Near East, water was a big deal. Having a well or a spring that produced fresh water, that was key. And they would actually build villages and towns around good water supplies. And so it was critical to have a predictable source of water. Having a predictable reputation when it comes to your character of speech is also critically important. Are you the kind of person that talks the good talk when you're around Christian people or around the crew on Sunday morning, but then on Monday are guilty of slander, guilty of gossip, guilty of cussing out someone? That shouldn't be. And not only does it reflect a heart issue, which we'll get to in a moment, but it's also going to destroy your opportunities for ministry, your opportunity for relationships. It's going to destroy your reputation. It makes people question, who is this person? Is he the person cussing people out on Monday morning? Or is he the person who is saying nice flowery things on Sunday? Like, who is it? Who is that person? It destroys trust and it pushes people away. And we got to admit, what makes it hard for many of us is the external influences on our mouth. So you're at work and you're surrounded by a bunch of people that talk the same way. And it's hard because it's so tempting to just listen and talk the same talk so that you kind of blend in and fit in. And, you know, the media that we put into our minds week in and week out affects the language that we use. And this is especially, I see an issue where Christians, you know, we listen to all kinds of great videos or podcasts of people that might even be speaking truthful elements and helpful things, but they do it in a way that is distinctly not Christian. They're not Christian people. They're not trying to speak like Christians. They just say what they want and they light fires all over the place. And we kind of listen to that and yeah, maybe it's truth content, but the way it's communicated is not the way that we should communicate. So that's a trouble. And that's going to have an influence on the way you speak and having blessing and cursing come out of your mouth. It's not okay. A Christian should aim to speak consistently like a Christian. One of the most difficult times when you'll have the, the, the difficulty doing this is during trials during difficult circumstances in your life, like I mentioned earlier, when those, those down days you have. And you know what I mean because many of you have had these in the last week or in the last several weeks. You might be facing right now some of the most trying days ahead of you. The emotions are running high and the nerves are shot and there's endless opportunities to say something that you'll regret. And you may not like this, but listen, What you say in those times reveals something about your soul. It reveals something about your heart. There's not a better window to the state of your heart than what you say. 
what comes in here or what's in here ends up coming out at those moments. So think about Job. We've, we reference Job a lot because of the life that he lived. It was a lot of hardship. God allowed Satan in one day to take away all of Job's wealth and all of Job's children. He received that brutal news. And this is what scripture records. It says that he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and cursed God out. No, <laughs> he worshiped. His response to all of that out of his mouth was to worship. And this is what he says. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. When it was his worst day, he worshiped. His mouth spoke truth and he didn't sin. That's incredible. But get this, after that, Satan went one step further and took his health away. And Job's wife, not a great woman right now, she goads him and says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And then scripture says this again, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That is consistency. And that's a, a pure and right heart in all those things. And it reminds us that we are not defined by who we are on our best days. You know, when things are going well, when you have the job, when you have the husband and the kids or the wife and the kids and the vacations and whatever else, how you respond in those days does not define who you are. The good news is nor are we defined by who we are on our worst days, at least not in Christ we aren't. He's forgiven us so that we, if we don't measure up, can find our identity in the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus. So you're not defined by who you are on the best day, also not defined by who you are on the worst day. However, you are refined by the knowledge of who you are on the worst day. On your worst days, you see something you didn't get to see before. You get to see how you respond. And it's kind of like the trial scrapes back a layer of the niceties of our life and reveals a part of our heart that we might've been denying was there. And it's, it's ugly often, but it's good to get it out to the light and to deal with it. So often you and I were not conscious of how desperately wicked our hearts are until those moments come. And when we see that, it reveals a problem, right? It reveals. And that's why James is going to go on later in his letter to say, purify your hearts. The only way we can really truly purify our hearts is coming back in repentance before God, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging we're not as good as we like to think we are. We need you and we're saved by you and you alone. And so we come back in 1 John 1, 9, we all should know it by now, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we go apologize for what we said and we get back on track and we aim to speak consistently out of a heart that is tuned to God. Church family, we have to take this call seriously, what we do with our mouths. James 1 verses 26, I'll leave you with this. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. 
You can be like, I got it together. But if this part goes unmanaged, there's a problem. So it's critical. It's critical we control our tongue. It's by grace we can control our tongue and even start to see a change, but we must start and we must start today. We must start remembering today again, don't speak carelessly. Don't just shoot off into the breeze, whatever, right? Don't underestimate the power of your words and don't speak inconsistently, but reflect the true heart that's tuned to God.